0: Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is Chris and, well, we're talking today about a topic that I think is probably one of the most important things to learn in, in life that never gets taught and everyone gets surprised when it happens and the topic is grief. So nobody teaches a child how to grieve, how to deal with loss, how to deal with things. They just could console them. Uh, no one teaches a, a, an adult how to deal with grief. They just console them. And therefore, because it feels like a little bit cold or hard or mean or something like that, that that we are able to move through grief in a matter of hours, hours, rather than a matter of weeks. I know in some traditions in Europe, I think in Greece, uh, the the people wear black clothes uh, um, for a year, in grief, to witness the uh, respect for the dead or whatever. And this is really uh, benign because it comes from a very, very, very old religious tradition that made the spouse and family bind to the, to the, to the, to the dead. And it also made the dead uh, people who were alive be really careful about what they did just in case they were dead and didn't get to heaven. And so the people who were grieving were praying all the days that the person who died went to heaven. And as you know, and as a thinking person would know, this whole thing is a complete fraud and a complete myth. But it's the truth of the masses. And we are not going to go head to head with... uh, um, someone who's a fundamentalist in religion, because you already know from the earlier part of this 30 uh, day challenge, that going head to head with someone who's in a got to or a should place, you may as well be uh, in a boxing ring with a heavyweight boxer with bare knuckles. It, it, they will be defensive, they wanna be righteous, they've got to fight flight, they've got to fight back. And that is a really, really, really stupid thing to do. So. We're not actually talking about condemning anybody for their religion, condemning anybody for their fundamentalism. What we're saying is, we don't need to. We don't need to behave that way. So, a couple of stories. Well, first one, I, as a, a, a younger person, decided I wanted, and, and I was going through a relationship uh, separation, and I thought, you know, damn it, I'm going to go to, I had a friend in Germany, I flew to Munich. He picked me up at the airport, uh, took me to his home. We had a couple of weeks laughing our way around Munich. And then he said, what are you going to do with the rest of your time? And I said, I want to go snow skiing. I want to learn to ski snow. I'd never done a good job of that. So he took me to a place called, uh, please forgive me if you're Austrian here, but he went, took me to a place called Obertauen, Obertauen, And Obertauen is a really great ski resort, but unfortunately for me, it was off season. And that means the place was just pure ice. The chair lifts froze, I froze, the ground was frozen. And apart from, I was there for three weeks up in Obadau, and I took lessons every day. Most of it, I was learning to ice skate on skis. <laughs> and, but there were periods in there where we had massive dumps of snow, and I could go and learn to ski powder. <clears throat> My ski instructor was a really brilliant person, and he, uh, had the objective to take me, uh, to take me uh, out and teach me how to go down moguls and black slopes and uh, snow powder, deep powder snow. <clears throat> but the first thing he did every single day was take me somewhere where I had to stop, where I had to learn how to arrest a slide. And so we went to very steep uh, black slopes Uh, black ice slopes, and on pure ice, I had to learn the skill of stopping. And then he took me to deep, deep, uh, a deep, deep valley with powder snow over top of our head, and I had to work out how, not to ski, but how to stop in that environment. And then he took me to the moguls, massive moguls on a really steep thing. And I'm, again, remembering I'm one week into this course, Uh, into this thing and I was taking private lessons. I was one week in and I'm going down very steep slopes. But his philosophy was this, if you can't stop, you can't go. If you can't stop, you'll be holding back the whole time, worried about your ability to uh, arrest a slide. So you'll be going at half pace. You'll be driving, pretty much uh, the description of it, I would say now is driving with one foot on the brake, just in case and one foot on the accelerator trying to go down. As the old story that my dad used to tell me over and over again, it'd be the equivalent to two people riding up the hill on the tandem, on a tandem bike, and the first one at the front says, "Pooh, that's the hardest hill I've ever had to ride up. And the one on the back said, yeah, I was so frightened, I kept the brakes on just in case we rolled backwards. <laughs> and people live life like this because they don't know how to stop. They're frightened of losing. They're frightened of losing their job, they're frightened of losing their uh, partner, they're frightened of losing their parents, they're frightened of losing their kids. And so because of that, they drive life with a foot on the brake. But in Obertown, on the ski resort, my ski instructor taught me how to stop. And he, we, 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 if we had a, a five-hour ski lesson or a six-hour ski lesson, uh, half of it was spent learning to side-slide, learning how to go into powder, and if you're flipped over, how to how to um, um, get yourself up out of powder snow, which is really, really complicated um, for me. Uh, uh, how to go down Moguls, and at some stage of the place, stop. Actually stop halfway down the Moguls. How to deal with sliding down a hill, and he used to make me slide down. And then later on, <clears throat> I went to... Uh, <coughs> I went to um, uh, New Zealand to learn mountaineering and the, the, we went up a mountain and the first thing the instructor did is showed me how to stand on a, a, a very, very, very steep slope, throw myself on, uh, down the slope rolling with a backpack on and how to use ice axes to actually slide into a stop. And of course, I was roped up so that the... the, the the possibility was I would only slide until the end of the rope, and the rope was tied around him or a tree or whatever. Is this skill, uh, as you is, is a life-saving skill because in uh, uh, walking in the mountains and mountain climbing, you're quite often walking along rope together, and if one person slips down through the snow, uh, which is covering a crevasse, they go vertically down at a hundred miles an hour. And you holding onto that rope, if you don't do something smart, all you're going to do is go with them. So the rope would not become a rescue mechanism. It would become a death mechanism. So again, in a mountaineering, what you learn to do is stop, arrest the fall. And that means throw yourself face down on the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the ice, on the snow, dig your ice axes in, hold them in a certain way. Keep your feet up, because if your feet with the crampons on, touch Any part of the snow, you become like a catapult and you get thrown over the top of yourself, breaking your ankles in the process and end up going down the crevasse, which are hundreds of meters deep, um, shaking hands with the person you are supposed to be uh, rescuing or stopping the fall. So these uh, metaphors of learning how to stop are so important. Same as an athlete learning how to deal with an injury because they happen but they don't teach it. And one of the things that happen in life is you end up single. You're in a relationship, you end up single. You end up with a child who leaves the world. You end up with a friend who leaves the world. Everything, everything nothing's permanent. We know life is temporary. And uh, so I'm gonna share a few things. One is the story of being, one is the story of being in Canada. I was standing in front of a workshop, and I'm talking to this group about uh, a a universal law of nature. And the universal law of nature, which keeps you, by the way, in the top end of the consciousness cone, the universal law of nature is nothing's ever missing, it just changes in form. And I made the words in front of this relatively large group, I think it's about 200 people, including quite a smattering of Uh, First Nation Indigenous leaders um, from the Mi'kmaq tradition. I made the comment, people can't die. They can only change form. And almost like someone had been stuck with a, a knife in the back of their ribs, a woman screamed in pain. She was a First Nation leader. She's a big, relatively big lady, big, long, black hair. And she stood up, how dare you, how dare you, like that. And her mother had died a week ago. And I had 200 people staring at me going, well, now you're fucked up, Walker. And I'm standing there going, well, I've, I know how to stop. I know how to fall in front of a crowd. I know how to deal with this. And the way I did it, is what the story is about. So I turned to to this lady who was standing in pretty much the middle of this crowd, and I said, I understand your pain. Would you like, before you condemn me for what I said, would you like me to demonstrate what I'm talking about? Put it into practice. And bravely, she said yes. I said, okay, to all her friends sitting around her, Get out a notepad and pencil right now, quickly. You need to scribe. So I said to this woman standing up in the crowd, please tell me what you miss about your mum. She's gone a week. Tell me what you miss about your mum. And she started to rant. And she said, I miss her hugs. I miss her kisses. I miss her love. I miss her friendship. I miss her uh, advice. I miss her playing with my children. I miss her support. I miss her strength. I miss her, and she listed these things. And it went for quite a period of time. I would say three minutes. Everyone was scribing and scribbling. And I said, okay, one by one, the people who were scribbling and scribing, one by one, I would like you to read out every single thing she said was missing. So the first person said, she's missing the mum's strength. And I said to the lady, that I was talking to the second your mother died, who stepped into your life and and wrapped their arms around you and gave you strength, uh, with strength? And she said, well, my brother. And I said, anybody else? She goes, well, I had to be stronger. Okay, so is strength missing? She goes, no, but it's not mum. And I go, yeah, I know that, but it's not missing. She goes, no, it's not. I said, so uh, what else? And so the next person said, um, uh, uh, warmth. I said to the lady, so when the second your mother died on the bed, who became warmer? Who gave you warmth? And she goes, well, all my friends and my kids uh, surrounded me and cuddled me. I said, So is warmth missing? She goes, well, no, but it's not my mum. And I said, I know it's not your mum, but is warmth missing in your life? She goes, no. And I said, what else? Well, she gave me security. And I said, okay, good, 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 okay, I get that. So the second your mother died, where did your security now come from? And she said, well, she left me money in the will uh, and, Uh, my uh, other brother stepped in and said, I will be there for you forever. So I said, was was security missing? Is security missing? She goes, well, it's not mum, but it's not missing. I said, okay. And we went through probably, I don't know, 50 different things that mum provided. Hugs, kisses, cuddles warmth, advice. She, I said, who gave you, who, who started giving you advice the second your mother passed away? And she said, actually, my little kids did. And my dad, who I hadn't spoken really much to, but dad started giving me advice about things. And I said, so was it, is it missing what your mum gave you? She goes, but it's not my mum, but it's not missing. I said, so, so, so we went through 50 things. By the time 50 things got, had gone past, the room had become dead silent. Dead silent. You could hear a pin. And I said to her, standing there, I said, so what's missing? And she said, my mum's love. And I said to her, I said to her, close your eyes. And she did. And I said, who's behind you right now in this room? She goes, oh, my God, it's my mom. I said, what's she saying to you? She said, she's saying I love you. And what do you want to say to her? I love you, Mum. 200 people in a room had tears. Not griefy tears running from the centre of the eyes. Inspired eye tears running from the corners of their eyes because 200 people felt the presence of a mum. 200 people felt the love. 200 people saw what you could call, uh, in some worlds, a miracle, but what they saw was the truth. People don't die, they just change form. Nothing can be missing. And so when we separate from somebody and we move on, the love for that person can never die. And all the stuff that they provided just comes in a different form. That's an abundant, loving universe. And the love that you have for that person doesn't die with them. I have a thousand stories I could tell you about the topic that we just spoke about, about grief. About having, practicing, letting go things on a daily basis so that the self-talk in your head becomes you can deal with anything. You say it to yourself, you can deal with anything. You could deal, you can handle with love losing your partner, your job, your car, your leg, your arm. And therefore, you don't drive in life with one foot on the brake and one foot on the accelerator. So I'm going to finish this story with something that most people don't like to hear. So if you don't like to hear stories that confront your belief patterns, switch off now. But grief is at the very bottom of the consciousness cone. There is, uh, it is the bottom of the pit. And we have to go there because grief is honest. We grieve. We have to go there. There is no choice. The only question we get is for how long. When my first marriage failed, and I'd been married six times. When my first marriage failed, for three years, I really was on the cusp of madness. My wife and I had been struggling for four years. We'd been together for since we were 19 and 18, and we were now in our early 30s, and we had three kids, and my wife and I had been struggling for five years, I would say, to connect at the way two human beings in love need to be connected in a house to bring up children. We'd been struggling. And she finally fell in love with another man and had an affair. I fell in love with another woman and had an affair. We had threesies and twosies and God knows what'sies to try to rebuild what had been lost. But finally, uh, acrimoniously and with a great deal of uh, bottom of the pit got to, I had to face for the second time in my life the loss of a woman because uh, my mother had died when I was three years old. And so my relationship with my wife from the age of 19 It wasn't with a mother, but it was with someone that would never leave. But my behavior, of course, my self-talk, pretty much manifested what I feared. And it was inevitable that I would one day have to stand tall and go through the process of letting go my mum properly, and go through that process through the letting go of someone I loved. So midway through this one year, the first year of our divorce, my uh, then ex-wife announced to the world that she was going sailing. And the man she was going sailing with is the one she fell in love with, who was my uh, ex-rowing coach, who I'd helped from time to time build a boat. And so he and her declared to the world they were going sailing. And on that boat would be my two-year-old daughter my five-year-old son and my seven-year-old. And they would sail off for a year around the world. And I, uh, although I went to court to try and stop it, I was told by the judge I was a selfish bastard for trying to prevent this journey. So I surrendered, much to the chagrin of my sister, who's a barrister, who said, your kids will never forgive you for not fighting. And I thought, well, I am a selfish bastard and she does deserve to go with him and I deserve to stay here and just wallow in my grief. So now it's five years of grieving and and now one year of absolute self-deprecated trying to survive in the world with this grief. And off they sailed. And the law courts had said that she needed to tell me where they were. So if I really, really wanted to, I could fly in and spend a weekend wherever they were in the world. But instead of going up Australia to Queensland and turning right to go to New Zealand, they changed their mind. Well, maybe that was the plan all the time and turned left at the top and sailed across into Singapore and then across to India. And I lost track of them. Every now and again, i get a postcard. It would be scribbled with the three kids' names, and that would be it. And I finally had to learn how to get past grief. Firstly, I was dealing with missing my children. And yet, nothing's ever missing. It just changes in form. And one day, sitting in Zen because I use Zen and all the Eastern arts to try and deal with this, I looked up at the moon and I thought to myself, she, my kids are under the same moon. And if I can look up at that moon and love my kids, they know I love them. And then I suddenly realized what I was missing was not my kids, I was missing the expectation of my kids, and suddenly I realised expectations, my expectations of my children, being a father, being around them, my expectation was blocking my love. And it was the love that was making me cry. But the love didn't go away, just like the lady in the room. I loved my kids, whether they were on a boat sailing around the world with their mum and her new partner, or whether they were sitting here in the lounge room eating uh, cornflakes for breakfast. The love doesn't go away, whether they're alive or dead, or whether they're on a boat or sitting in my control. And I separated for the first time my expectations and my love. And I became, at that point, happy. Because I knew nobody, nobody could take anything ever away from me again. Because my love can't be taken away. And I developed this concept of love pockets in my heart. And love pockets in my heart means that every single person I've ever loved in my entire life, from birth, including my mum, from birth until death, my father's now gone. But i got a love pocket in my heart. And my dad's hammering and my dad's housing and my dad's lawn mowing and my dad's bashings and my dad's things. All of that, someone else took over that job. Because nature provides. And nothing's ever missing. But the love, the love for my dad is irreplaceable. And it's irreplaceable because it doesn't need to be. And so suddenly I was happy that my kids were wherever they were. And I was unafraid that I would ever lose them. And I became a different sort of dad. I became unconditional love, dad, which means, I don't mind where you go. I don't mind where you do, where you, who you with. I don't mind that you're with your mum and your new stepdad. I don't mind. I love you. And I know that love gets to them. And that's a very, very long time ago. Seven years I went before I saw my kids. And I didn't miss them a day. Now, you might find that story a little cold. And I'm not wishing that story on you. I'm not wishing that story on anybody. I'm saying, until such time you learn to love unconditionally, you will hold on to the thing you love. And therefore, it will be eventually wrenched out of your hands. So to polish off this story in the next three minutes, I just wanna share with you this. My first marriage took three years before I sat on that beach and finally let go of her and the kids. To unconditional love. My second marriage took three months. My third marriage took three weeks. My fourth marriage took three days with Elena. My fifth marriage took uh, probably still three days. And I just broke up last week with my sixth marriage. She has gone to to do triathlon and follow her star and her dreams, which is the reason we came together. She's gone elsewhere to do it with someone else, which is the perfect thing because that's what she needs to do. And it took me one hour. And I sat down with the grief form, which is on the page you've got in front of you on the day. I sat down with that grief form and I filled it out and I filled it out. I did the discard process, which you haven't been taught yet. And you can be taught if you want to, if you want to ask for it. I processed the letting go of the love of my life, my wife, the person that I've spent the last five years with and invested thousands of hours to help and grow and celebrate and travel around the world and go to places. a relative shock, which I didn't see coming, we, in the process of two weeks, realised our time's up. It's time to move on. And she'd found someone else. In the first hour, I worked really hard on sheets of paper. I knew where to go. Before I started grieving and wallowing, I gave myself that hour to just sit in it. I just sat there and grieved because that's honest. The second hour, I sat there and wrote 50 sheets of paper in columns about letting go what it was I was holding on to, what's the drawback of the form that it's in, what's the new form that it's coming in, and what's the benefit of the new form. It's pretty, pretty simple. In the third hour, I sat there and I suddenly was happy, just completely let go. It was done. And I made some phone calls to people that I really care about. And In a sense, the friendship piece of my relationship just changed form. Nothing's ever missing, just changes in form. This is Chris. Have a beautiful day. Bye-bye.